Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, hey. Steve. Shock jock Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. Australia's greatest motor race is Bathurst. Run around an improbable racetrack on the fringe of a regional town up and around Mount Panorama. It attracts, until these COVID times at least, the most passionate motorsport fans just about anywhere in the world. They relocate to campsites, set up mobile kitchens and bars and post their colours. You're either for Ford or for Holden. To win Bathurst once is an amazing effort. To win it twice is something to brag about. Our guest for On The Record this episode has won it twice and would love to do it again. Will Davison comes from Australian motor racing royalty, including his grandmother, one of the first female motor racers in the country. Will, welcome to On The Record. Tell us, how unique is Bathurst, not just here in Australia, but as a motorsport event around the world? Hey, Steve, yes. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, All all well. It's been a crazy year for for all of us, and certainly for me, it's been uh, a really, really tough year. Starting the championship and starting it really well in Adelaide, and uh, then having the, the sponsor and my sponsor and team pull out. Certainly weird being on the sidelines, uh, but yeah, obviously now in a really competitive uh, car and, and team for, for Bathurst in a few weeks. So it's yeah, certainly great to be focused on a race again. Uh, we met, I mentioned Bathurst there, Will. I mean, it is unique, but not just here in Australia, around the world. It is sort of a one of a kind event, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It's, uh, you know, I think we're so fortunate to, to have that event. I think it's done so much for creating a, a culture and, um, you know, that we have here in Australia for motorsport. You know, I think it's really created a legend, uh, a myth and, and an aura around it, which so many categories have sort of grown from. And I think in particular, supercars, the category we have now, um, you know, I think it's, it's all been born from Mount Panorama, Bathurst. And not only um, is it something that, you know, us drivers dream of driving on, racing on, winning on, um, you know, I think the fans um, that that can relate to it, even if they don't follow motorsport, it's that one track or that one race that has been, you know, instilled in families and generations of families um, is, is really cool. And, it's uh, you know, it's special to be able to compete in that race. And I think globally as well, the recognition it now has is, is only gone tenfold in the last sort of 10 years. Um, the recognition that event has and, and sort of the respect that it generates um, to drivers and, and race teams and, and manufacturers that want to come out to that circuit and compete with their cars uh, to try and win that race um, is massive. It's honestly got, uh, yeah, it's got such a big following worldwide. When you talk to uh, international racers who've had out and come out and had a crack, and there's plenty of them, or international team owners, uh, are they blown away when they first see that circuit and drive it? They are. I think um, you know simulation these days has has got so much better. So I would say in the last five years, uh, people are better prepared. But because the simulation and, and the graphics is all digitally scanned, so they now arrive with a better perspective of the elevation and, and how narrow and blind it is across the top of the mountain. Um, but it, it's still that shock factor. I think when people arrive and, and see the mountain from a distance, um, come into town to see actually the way the circuit is, um, you know, is all laid out. And, and then, you know, that first time you head around there on foot or in a road car, um, it's, it's so different than when you watch videos or onboard cameras when you're studying 
you know, what it's going to be like at a circuit. Um, everyone thinks they understand it because if you go through a blind section at Bathurst, which anyone who's never been there in a race car, uh, a blind section on Fortor at 60k an hour lasts for 30, 20 or 30 seconds. But in a race car at 200 plus k an hour, you pop in and out of those zones in a matter of a couple of seconds. So it doesn't look as blind when you're going at full speed, if you like, because you you get through those points and you have reference points on the horizon. It might be a tree or a, you know, um, you know, a, a lamp post or a, 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 some painting on the wall that, that gives you a point of what you're aiming for or where you want to turn. Um, and you know, at, at slow speed, it, it's more frightening, I think, than at full speed. If you know what I mean. So, uh, but yeah, it does shock even the best of them, whether they're from Formula One, World Champion. Um, you name it, um, they, they do come out and you just see them all, uh, yeah, absolutely uh, blown away, which which is nice. As a, someone myself who's been racing there so many years, you, you don't take it for granted, but you get so used to the circuit. Um, but then to see some people that come out and people that you respect so much that have maybe won at Nürburgring and some of the other craziest tracks in the world, um, that come out and go, wow, this place is something else, is, uh, is really cool. Well, it's the definition, Will, isn't it, of, of blind courage and combined with skill. I mean, take us through one of the blind sections. I mean, so the interesting point you just made there, I think, is you have a reference point, whether it be a tree or a sign. And I remember Alan Moffat once telling me that when he drove in uh, the Le Mans 24-hour and it was dark and there was the circuit was covered in fog, and he, the only way he could work out when to turn left or right was the braking marker points. So it comes down to that, that skill, doesn't it? And but you've then got to have the courage to throw the car into somewhere where you don't really know where you're going. Yes, um, it's. I mean, certainly courage. I mean, when you are on a qualifying lap there, um, no matter how many times I've been there, it's that one time where you do tighten the belt that little bit tighter. Um, you take that deeper breath when you're doing a shootout lap. Because you go beyond, you go beyond that point of, I'm going to call it 100, percent which is the limit. You do go to 101, and that's it's it's crazy. I mean, you you sort of it, it's an educated risk, but you are going to that point of no return. Like as we come into Skyline, um, you, it's maybe 230k an hour. You turn in, still on full throttle at the very top of the mountain. Um, and you've got to aim the car so millimetre perfect. So, yes, it's, you've got to have courage to to go in so deep into a blind, hugely elevated part of the circuit, but you've got to be so precise. So like a golf swing I like to compare to motorsport, which people would find hard to, to get their head around. But, yes, it's, you've got to be courageous and, and brave, but you've got to be so delicate when you're on the limit like that. There's somewhere like Bathurst that's, the road rising and falling. If you're one millimetre too far left or you're out of a certain bit of road camber or you, you brake a little bit too hard with a little bit too much steering lock at the wrong point, and when you downshift and uh, you don't match the revs correctly, that means the rear of the car will have a big wobble. And if you're in the wrong point of the track by a millimetre, it's, it's all over. But if you do everything perfectly and smooth, um, the amount of speed you can carry down the hill um, is, is incredible. So, yeah, it's got to be, you know, you've got to be brave, but you've got to be so smooth like a perfect golf swing. And if you do anything a bit too hard, you know, you tense up a little bit because you try that little bit harder because it's qualifying and it means that bit more, just like a golf swing. I'm going to hit this ball further 
and then everything goes out the window. And uh, it's actually the same in our cars. So you've got to be so in tune with your car and literally dance it. You've got to be connected with it. And uh, it's such an amazing feeling when, you, when you're on round Bathurst and you, you're connected to your car and you, you're driving at such a high level. But it doesn't feel crazy. Everything's right in control. And uh, Bathurst is that kind of circuit. When you're in a rhythm there and you've got all your your points down pat and you're, you're skimming all the right walls and the car's got amazing grip, um, it, it feels yeah, it feels really fluid and, and really nice, such a good feeling. But then we've all had that moment where Bathurst reminds us <laughs> who's boss and it's one lapse in concentration or one little thing that goes wrong and, uh, yeah, you, you go into that. In a sense, Will, it's okay. almost easier to race around there than to do that qualifying lap, right? Yeah, I mean, good point. Yeah, it's uh, qualifying is, I mean, the car is, is so crucial. Getting the balance right with your engineer is incredibly crucial these days. And you know straight away on your warm-up lap on a new set of tyres, you feel if those new tyres come in, you feel them grip up underneath you. It gives you that, it gives you that message to go right, attack. And when you've got new tyres on the car, you've got more grip. Um, if your car's handling well, the, yeah, it, it's such a great feeling being able to go to that limit with comfort. Um, but it's the sort of track, if your car's not underneath you and you're like, all right, I need to dig deep here to get in that top 10 shootout, it's, it's a frightening experience. It's honestly the Friday afternoon at Bathurst. It's mm. probably the most nervous any driver gets all year because it is that one track that does remind you, you know, um, the consequences are really high here if you get it wrong, but the reward's so high as well, which is what motorsport's all about. So um, you get in the race, and yeah, there's an, a whole other factor of um, things that that, that appear. Um, but in terms of the way you drive the car and the, and the rhythm you're in when you've got a full tank of fuel um, and being in the traffic, um, there's a whole whole host of other elements that can go wrong, but certainly the way you drive the car in the race you're much more relaxed. I'd say your heart rate's down 20 or 30 beats a minute in, in the race as to what it is over one single qualifying lap, where at times, you know, there's, there's stories that people don't take a breath for a whole qualifying lap for two minutes. I mean, I'm sure that's not quite true, but I, I do know the feeling, the amount of times I've finished a qualifying lap there, completely and utterly gasping for air. It's, uh, you just put so much energy into that lap. I guess in a race, though, what's taken out of your control is that someone can cause you to have an accident yourself was it was it two three years ago was that that Chaz Mostert accident where he ended up running the roof along the fence and nearly cleaned up a couple of track marshals I mean things like that can happen in a race can't they oh yeah absolutely I mean yeah there's there's a whole host of things that happen in the race I mean not only on your own uh, maybe a car in front of you spins uh, maybe someone drops oil uh, the marbles build up over 161 laps thousand kilometers you know, the marbles that appear off racing line. So it becomes nearly a, a single lane racetrack because just off the racing line, uh, we get a lot of, you know, marbles from uh, from all the rubber going down on mm. the circuit. Um, so if you just drop half a tyre off line, it's like hitting an ice skating rink. So a lot of other elements come into play, um, you know, teams doing brake pad changes. So just all those processes and reminders to pump up the brake pedal, you know, when you're leaving the pits. Um, and then it becomes the race after race, trying to get that crucial track position. You know, try not to scratch your car early on, making sure it's 100% perfect for those last 30 laps. But there's always moments in the race where it's like you're getting stuck in dirty air, you're right behind someone, your brakes are getting hot, your engine's getting hot. You know, it's a crucial time 
you're not going to win the race on lap 30 or 40, but certainly there are moments where you need to get yourself in clean air and you need to make a risky passing opportunity. And there's different drivers, there's co-drivers in the cars and main drivers. And yeah, there's a whole, whole range of things that, that can go wrong in your day there. And really it's trying to attack but not make mistakes. And that's in the pit lane, uh, in your driver changes. Um, and just over the course of the day, it's, uh, yeah, a race that when it goes to plan and, you know, you get to the end and you've had a great day, it seems pretty straightforward, but then you can have so many years there where you feel like you've done all your preparation and, and just can't take a trick and, and you just, everything seems to go wrong. So, uh, well, well, yeah, it's been we've seen, quite, we've seen people lose the race on the first lap, which is amazing. It is such a team event. I mean, uh, I want to get into the background of your family a sec, but just last thing on, on Bathurst before we come back to it later, um, it is now a team, it's a team event. You've got co-drivers. Uh, how much more pressure does that put on you? Because, I mean, I guess you're saying to yourself mentally, I don't want to let, in in your instance this year, Cam Waters, I don't want to let my, my teammate down. Exactly right. Uh, and I'm going there with a completely different mindset um, this year. And although, you know, I feel like I, I should be a main driver out there, um, just given the nature of 2020, um, you know, I don't, don't feel like a victim. I'm, I'm on the sideline sidelines this year through not normal circumstances so you know I'm in there with Cam but it is his car I mean he won the last race leading into Bathurst so our you know our crew on car six and they've got good momentum Cam's third in the championship points, so uh, he can't win it Scott McLaughlin's wrapped up the title but it's still a great result for Cam to hold on to that top three it'll be his best championship position so I, I do feel a sense of responsibility because I've been there before for so many years as the main guy where you know, yes, I've won the race twice, but to be honest, there's probably two other years that come to mind where I actually feel like I was more deserving of winning, where I was the quickest car. I was on pole position in 2012. I was 2011 leading the race comfortably, and same in 2012. And then we just had everything go against us, co-drivers crashing, going in the fence, um, other issues um, which happened. So I understand what he might be feeling. And you know, the responsibility for me, it's not about me. Um, yes, I'm going to do everything I can to fulfill my role, but uh, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking of Cam and feeling that pressure of it being his car. And and, uh, and that's, yeah, really weird for me at the moment as I sit here in my last week of preparation as to how I attack it. You know, I've got to drive the car hard. Um, but, yeah, sort of there's times where I've got to maybe treat it a little bit different to my own car. So, uh, yeah, very, very strange nature, but uh, we're working well together and, um, yeah, I, I'm enjoying it, and um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's a huge team effort, and uh, you know, everyone's got to lift their, you know, lift their socks up and and uh, really perform on race day, and that's really at the end of the day all you can do. Don't think too too much about you know all the little things. Um, just focus on what you do best and treat it no different to uh, any other race. Come back to Bathurst. I mentioned your family being uh, racing royalty. Were, were you aware of that, Will, when you were growing up? Did you? I mean, I guess you always had uh, photographs and pictures around the house and you, you obviously visited your grandfather and your grandmother and stuff, but did, was, were you aware that, that that's the, the sort of family you'd been born into? Yeah, I def- definitely was, uh, only because, um, yeah, there was an incredible passion amongst the family. And a great history. Uh, and, yeah, a great history. So, yeah, I, from, the, all, from the day I can remember, I suppose, um, yeah, I was at I was at racetracks um, down at the family farm, and yeah, it was, it was just a huge part of 
what our family is to this day. I mean, I never met my grandfather, Lex Lex Davison. He won the Australian Grand Prix on four occasions. Um, he was killed in 1965 at Sandown. So my, my dad was only 11 years of age. There were seven children. Um, so it was obviously a huge thing for that family and for my grandmother, Di, Diana Gaze, uh, Diana Davison. Um, you know, it, it, it sort of, it directed the, the direction of where the family went and, and Guy ended up, you know, 10 years on or further uh, remarrying Tony Gaze, who was effectively my step-grandfather. Um, you know, Tony and Lex were great friends. They they did the Monte Carlo Rally in, uh, in a 48-215 Holden, first, Holden's first ever motorsport event, um, <laughs> you know, over the Monte Carlo Rally with Stan Jones, Alan Jones's father. So, I mean, amazing history between them. I mean, Tony was a, Australia's actually first ever Formula One driver. Um, he, uh, yeah, he was an amazing fighter pilot in World War Two, um, three DFCs. Um, and Tony only passed away in 2013. So he was effectively my grandfather. And I'm very, very, very proud um, of that history. He's a remarkable man. And um, yeah, my, my whole life, I suppose, with my dad, my, my uncles. Um, you know, John, my uncle, founded, you know, founded but promoted at Sandown uh, for all those years. Um, yeah, a lot of great stories. And, uh, yeah, it was never pressed onto us, if anything, probably the opposite. You know, my, my grandma died, you can imagine, um, was probably anti us boys going into motorsport, the grandkids. I think a couple of her sons had, had done it, um, juggling a big family business and, uh, you know, Maybe she thought it wasn't the best career path for us, but at the end of the day, when a passion's so strong, and it's only a good thing to bring families together at times. And I think my dad, Richard, um, never, ever pushed us. It was something that, as kids, my brother and I, Alex, um, loved. He gave us the chance to go go-karting, and it was very healthy. You know, we, we drove around the countryside with a trailer on the back, sharing remarkable memories. And, uh, you know, it just so happened that we loved it so much, he made sure that we were committed um, and uh, that's what really inevitably got us to that next step into car racing out of go-karts was, you know, we had to really prove to him that we wanted to do it, and uh, he had no choice but to support us in the end. Grand, granddad Lex, um, that must have been a, a very big story when, when he lost his life at Sandown. Did, did you ever go back and look at the detail of that? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did. It was so long ago. Um never met him so to me Lex has always been this a name that every week of my life there's not a, a week that goes by where his name doesn't come up in some way shape and I, I never never met him and um, so he's yeah nearly like <laughs> this mystical uh, figure for me but uh, forever young as they say he was only 41 years of age so um, you know every time at Sandown as a kid you know I know exactly where the incident was um, you know, the amount of times I've done a track walk around there or driven past there. Uh, and yeah, I get this, like, this, this feeling that comes over me every time I walk past that scene. Um, just cause it's, it's what's created my life, I suppose, of someone I never, never met. Um, you know, and you just wish, you just hope that he's, he's <laughs> in some way, shape or form, you know, uh, up there and able to see what his legacy, you know, what his legacy's done and, um, yeah, I mean, I speak to my, my before my grandmother died, passed away in 2012. Um, you know, it was only very recent that, uh, you know, I remember she mentioned um, some of the people that came into the family home that night in, in Turak in, in Melbourne. And she was in such a blur with kids at school and, 
you know, um, Lex, you know, through the family business, Paragon Shoes. And, you know, I think they were, you know, quite a social couple around Melbourne, but it was, you know, only all these years later, she had some people that reminded her that they were at her house that night, you know, everyone giving their best wishes. And it was guys like Graham Hill and Sir Jack Brabham and, um, you know, Jim Clarks and (laughs) these incredible legends that were, you know, racing against Lex and would come out to Australia and do the Tasman series that, you know, were, you know, were, were around and paying their condolences. And, um, you know, some of the people she even forgot in those moments. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's quite, when she's telling me this stuff, it's, it's quite uh, an era that uh, of motorsport that I don't think we'll, we'll ever see again. But uh, they had so much respect for each other back in that day. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just absolutely fascinated by the, the history of motorsport and, and those days. Well, you do follow it closely. I mean, and the story of Tony Gaze is just extraordinary that this this guy goes to Europe, fights in the, the Second World War as a fighter pilot and comes back as a race car driver. I mean, that's, a, that's sort of a boy's own annual type life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Tony, photographic memory. Um, and I used to, you know, while he was around, I was so lucky, um, but used to try and just, you know, pause the conversations with him because I was just, you just couldn't believe some of the things he'd be telling you as to whether it was when he was shot down, you know, um, you know, by the Germans in his Spitfighter and he escaped on foot and, you know, he over the Pyrenees and through the, the French. You know, Sounds like a movie. Exactly like a movie. I mean, and he tells you his greatest mistake was when he walked out onto the wings and instead of acting dead, you know, looking up at the sky and, and raising the bird, you know, and uh, <laughs> these, and then he got found and, you know, locked up for 30 days so he could let his face, you know, heal as he hit it on the, the gun barrel when he crash-landed himself because he was wounded. I mean, these are stories that uh, you can't <laughs> you can't get your head around. And uh, I've had, you know, over the years, only in his later years, you know, grown men that would come up nearly in tears when, you know, they, they would meet Tony um, if they were World War enthusiasts and followers that knew his true story. Um, and whether that's, you know, he's Spitfighters or, you know, in his race car days, um, some of the things he's told me, uh, you know, is to when he bought the the uh, Ascari Ferrari off uh, Enzo Ferrari, um, he bought the Ascari Ferrari and he actually debuted in Formula One with this car and, um you know, had to, to, to modify the engine so it wasn't quite at the spec of uh, the level one Ferrari Formula One cars and he ended up racing that and, and then sold it to Lex, believe it or not, my grandfather in Australia who who won uh, the Australian Grand Prix in this Ferrari and we still have the, the telegram from Enzo congratulating Lex on the, the victory in the Australian Grand Prix um, and then that Ferrari was then sold back to Europe and it's, it's now in the Donington Museum um, in in Europe as, as Ascari's world championship winning Ferrari. And, you know, it was only till seven or eight years ago where the, the owners of that car realized its history here in Australia and, and they actually bought it out to Australia in 2012 uh, for the Grand Prix at Albert Park. And, um, and yeah, Lex, uh, uh, Di and Tony were there, sorry, and all the family were there around this car. And uh, it was a really special, really special moment, actually. We talk about being. We wish we owned it now. <laughs> I bet. It'd be worth a few bob, wouldn't it? <laughs> worth a lot of money. We, we talk about courage around um, Bathurst, uh, and it does take courage, but it takes a hell of a lot of courage to get into a Spitfire plane and head over to the English Channel to take on the Germans. <laughs> oh, does it what? Um, 
you know, some of the the stories where, you know, Tony flew with, you know, Douglas Bader and Johnny Johnson and um yeah, I mean he Tony was the first first man to, to shoot down one of the, the you know, jet engine German Messerschmitt planes and he was he was so proud of his his Spitfires and he'd often tell me that he would spend that extra time um you know, fine tuning the bodywork on his Spitfire to get that extra ten mile an hour, not to go faster than his opposite. Well, to go faster, but to save his life. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's yeah, fantastic. Just um, you, you can't imagine uh, what those guys went through. I mean, Tony's brother Scott was nineteen. Um, I think he had some ridiculous low amount of hours in a Spitfire, maybe thirty odd hours or <laughs> thirty five hours, and. Uh, he was shot down very, very early on in the World War Two, and 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 killed. Um, so, yeah, uh, I just I remember after Tony passed away, we were going through belongings and some of his you know, medals and a lot of the stuff that's been now presented to you know the War Museum here in Australia, and we've we've donated a lot of his stuff to great causes, his motor racing things, and um, but yeah, finding a lot of his younger brother's belongings, you know, from World War Two that they found with him in his Spitfire. I mean, uh, yeah, phenomenal. phenomenal Anyone written a book about it? And, yeah, we do, there is a book on Tony. Um, just trying to think, <laughs> the uh, just trying to think of the name of it right now. Actually, it's, it's springing my mind. But there is a book on Tony Gaze. Um, if you put it into Google, um, yeah, really, really, really special book. Um, yeah, almost unknown. It's called. That's what it's called. Um, almost oh. unknown. So I'll look it up. You had a, yeah. an open wheel race career in Europe. How was that? Yeah, incredible, incredible. Um, now looking back um, at that time, uh, I'd won the Australian Formula Ford Championship here in Australia in 2001. And uh, yeah, you're just a young fella. And I was really fortunate to get the chance to head over. Um, and, and, you know, I was single minded and focused on Formula One. And it was, it was all. That was your ambition. All I knew at That's that what time. you wanted that to was do. My ambition. Oh, absolutely. Yep, we were very focused on it. It's now looking back and actually <laughs> realizing, you know, what I was doing over there, a young fella moving on my own, um, literally driving around Europe and, and the UK every weekend, racing with Lewis Hamilton. Uh, we did the British Formula Renault Championship together in two thousand and two. We were both equal third on points in that championship. He was a young McLaren back driver. Um, and so many other names now that have been in Formula One since um, were just my young rivals. It was just normal. You're in the heart of Formula One. I lived in Buckingham, you know, five minutes from Silverstone. Would wake up once a week to the roar of Formula One cars. I'd just go out there and watch them test. Um, you know, Mark Webber only lived around the corner and he was a great supporter of young Australian talent. And, you know, just to have Mark ring you and say, you know, I'm testing today, he'd be in the Jaguar and, just to be there as a young guy, um, you know, watching Formula One so close and, and Mark would ring you, you know, if I'm doing a test day in my Formula Three and he might be testing at Monza in the Formula One. It was all very normal, you know. I was right on the doorstep of Formula One. Um, I did the British Formula Three championship for two years. I, I did do some tests in 2004 for Minardi Formula One. So I got right right there, right on the doorstep and... Uh, Incredible world. I mean, incredible time. It, it, it taught me so much, and uh, it feels like a long time ago now. But uh, yeah, it was uh, an era where, um, yeah, I learnt a lot. Um, yeah, you'd do things different now if you went back, but that's just life. That's just growing up, and uh, forever, forever grateful for those experiences. And I, I think it actually 
enabled me to come back to Australia and, and be ready and be prepared when I, I got an opportunity to jump in a V8 supercar. The schooling that I, I had and I got from those cutthroat hardcore racing years in Europe where every young hotshot from every country around the world goes to those championships. So you grow up real fast and um, uh, yeah, it was a great schooling for me regardless. We didn't quite get the Formula One dream, but uh, yeah, had some amazing experiences, um, which yeah, forever cherish and it certainly enabled me to, to get a, a great kickstart and get a career back here in Australia. We're talking to Will Davison. It's very hard for Australians to break in. I mean, obviously, sponsorship money and dollars are, are the big barriers. Of course, we've had Alan Jones and, as you mentioned, Mark Weber and, and now Daniel Ricciardo. Um, Paul Stoddart uh, owned and ran Minardi. He, he must have been a, a help for the young Aussies, was he? Yeah, Paul's a... Paul's a great guy. I mean, great story. Um, to this day, I still do the Formula One two-seater rides at Melbourne every year. I know. So I've stayed, you know, in touch with uh, with Paul, and I still love smelling and tasting Formula One in that small way. And uh, yeah, Stoddy, a great story. You know, from from Melbourne, Collingwood, East <laughs> Car Salesman, basically that he's done the hard yards, and uh, yeah, just a, a ripper guy that uh, you know got to Formula One. He certainly. Um, you know, made some made some noise when he was there, and I think what he did for for Minardi Formula One and and for, for Mark Weber, and um, and then inevitably selling it on to Toro Rosso, which is now the Alpha Tori Formula One team, um, still in Faenza in Italy, kept a lot of people in jobs and a lot of work, and um, but yeah, a, a remarkable guy. Um, I remember at the end of 2003, you know, I was an ambassador with the Australian Grand Prix Corporation. Um, Will Power, who's um, a good friend of mine, but we were huge rivals back then. Uh, we were competing in the same championship. We'd been, he was second to me in the Australian Formula Ford series. We both went to Europe. We were both running in Formula 3, chasing the same sponsorship money, the same PR, I suppose, back in Australia, and uh, both chasing that same dream. And then we both tested for Paul Stoddart and Minardi in the same car on the same day. <laughs> so you could just imagine um, how, you know, how much was at stake for us? But uh, yeah, Paul certainly you know, loved doing what he could to get a couple of Aussies back in Formula One, and uh, he gave us that opportunity, which I'll be forever grateful. Um, I definitely know there was a chance that I could have got into Formula One with Minardi around that time. Um, yes, we required sponsorship money, absolutely, but it was certainly a lot less than what you know the drivers ended up in that car were bringing. Um, so you know we were certainly pushing hard on corporate Australia to, to get some, some Aussie companies on the uh, Minardi Formula One um, like they got for, for Mark Webber when he broke in. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't to be, but certainly um, he certainly loves having Aussies around at whatever chance he can. Europe's got the history. America's got the hype. I don't think, do they, Will, that most Australians quite understand how big motorsport is in America. You've been to Daytona. You've been to Indy 500. How big is it? Yeah, it's uh, like anything in, in America, isn't it? It's, uh, uh, you know, well, Indy, Indy 500 is something else. That's, that's the Bathurst 1000 for IndyCar, um, and that saves that championship, I think, um, because a lot of the other events aren't actually that big as a series. I think, you know, they're going through some challenges themselves um, in IndyCar, but the 500 is, it's like the Super Bowl. I think it's the, the, the world's greatest single-day sporting event. They get three, 350,000 on race day. <laughs> you, you just you can't, you can't believe it. My cousin's actually done five Indy 500s in the last five years. So 
I've been over there to witness it. I was there when Will Powell won it a couple of years ago in Victory Lane, and um, yeah, it's um, it's it's phenomenal. It's it's just it's just wild how passionate they get about motorsport. Um, NASCAR is another world in itself. Whether it's the Daytona 500, or I remember being at Bristol, um, a little bull ring short banked uh, oval a few years ago, 150,000 in this little bull ring, and. I didn't even know what I was watching. It was like being at the AFL Grand Final. And I've often always thought, how do, as motorsport, how do we create that that roar that you get at a great footy game at the MCG where everyone's out of their seat, cheering on the game right into every you know play or manoeuvre. And I'd say Bristol NASCAR was probably the only time I ever felt like I was at the AFL Grand Final in the last minute when it was down to one point. It was all these, uh, you know, Central America um, it's sort of like Talladega Nights, the movie. I thought that was fully, um, you know, not accurate, but it wasn't too far, far off some of the people in the stand um, cheering on and uh, the way they get into it. Is, Have you uh, tried that oval racing else. and how hard is it? I, I haven't, no. It, it's, it's another... Yeah, a different skill, a, wouldn't it? It's another skill set altogether. So, um, no, I never, never went down that path. When I ended up coming back to Australia, um, Will Power ended up going to America. We were both in Europe. He went the IndyCar route. I got the offer to come to Australia. So, yeah, I mean, Marcus Ambrose, I think, you know, he never won a race on an oval. I mean, he had a fantastic NASCAR career. You know, he was obviously very dominant here in V8 supercars. He was a legend on road courses in NASCAR. He was renowned as, you know, NASCAR's greatest ever road course racer, uh, all the Americans were like, who is this guy? Why is he so good? Um, but, you know, in the ovals, it took him a while. I mean, he ended up becoming quite competitive on the ovals, but all the young Americans, I mean, they, they grow up, instead of racing around Europe in formula cars like we did, um, they were running around short ovals in, in late model um, sprint cars and, um you know, that, that, that was a lot of these guys' careers. Uh, Tony Stewart and um, Dale Earnhardt. And, I mean, the list goes on. Kyle Bushes and they, they run on over. That's what they do. And for them, learning how to go on road course racing was like road course races going to oval racing. So the way NASCAR's evolved, you're getting a lot of those oval specialists that are actually finally learning how to drive on road courses. And you're getting a lot of the road course specialists adapting to ovals. So... Yeah, it, uh, yeah, I'd love to have a crack one day, but I think it, it'd be only for fun if I ever did it now. It's something that I think you need to have been doing your whole time. Not to drive fast. I think anyone can drive fast around an oval. It's when you get 30 of them, you know, in drafting and disturbed air and tuning the car, running different lines as the track evolves. I don't fully understand it, but there's certainly a lot more to it than uh, meets the eye when you, you just tuned in on the telly. I, I certainly know that much. The Americans have discovered V8 supercars. Obviously, Roger Penske's uh, been a big influence. I mean, it's it's good that there is that sponsorship money from the US in, in V8 supercars. It's been important, hasn't it? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, Penske coming out here five years ago um, was just a huge feather in the cap for, for supercars. Um, I mean, as a, a fan of motorsport, first and foremost, yes, I'm a competitor. Um, but yeah, I have just so much respect for, for Roger Penske and his team in America. I have done for, for so long. Um, just yeah, incredible race team. You know, I put them right up there with the legendary McLaren, Formula One, Penske, um, IndyCar, um, whether it's back in the 80s and, and 90s, you know, the famous Marlboro IndyCars and, uh, then the NASCAR and, and just his whole corporation as a whole, not just in motorsport, but 
as a businessman, um, the way they go about it, how corporate they are, perfectionist, attention to detail. They're just a team as a young driver. You look to Penske, just their presentation and the way they operate um, is, yeah, is what you aspire to. And, uh, yeah, to come here and uh, I think, you know, instantly created massive credibility um, to our championship and um, obviously he used his business to business exceptionally well. Um, every sponsor wanted to be affiliated with Roger Penske and his organisation and, and it, you know, it didn't take him long. It took a few years. They came here and I do recall how respectful they were of Australia. They didn't want to poach drivers that had contracts. They didn't want to stand on anyone's toes. They wanted to come and earn their stripes. And I really respected that and the way they went about things with what Penske do. And I remember Will Power five years ago ringing me going, man, you got, you got to get in with them. He goes, they will win. It might take them a few years, but I guarantee you they'll win and they'll do whatever it takes. And uh, over the course of a few years, yeah, they got the right people and they, they completely changed the culture in a team. They built a culture and, you know, they've excelled. I mean, Scott McLaughlin's obviously an exceptional talent. Um, but yeah, the, the the team that they've they've built around him and um, is yeah, it's a testament to, to to what those guys are. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's yeah, it's been great that they've been here in Australia and that probably got the Andretti um, Andretti side of things, which have bought into our category as well, buying into Walkinshaw Racing, Andretti United, um, straight from IndyCar as well. So um, yeah, it's certainly big for our championship here in Australia. It shows the, the reach we've got globally and, and obviously over to America. Uh, Bathurst, let's get back to that. How do you prepare physically? I mean, you uh, have not been driving regularly this year. As you said, you started in Adelaide and then a set of circumstances with sponsorship meant that you lost your seat, but you're now back for Bathurst. How do you physically prepare given you haven't been driving regularly? Yeah, I mean, race fitness is something that, I, I think we take for granted, you know, and I, I, I'd be lying if I said I'm 100% um, sure because I've never, ever been out of a race car for six months. And you like normally, by nature, you're a fit person anyway. You work at your fitness, don't you? You think that's an important part of your skill set. Yeah, it's obviously important to be fit. Um, I, I do it because generally when you're traveling a lot and I get mentally fatigued, training recharges my mind. <clears throat> And I feel, yeah, you just feel better within yourself to deal with whatever your pressures or stresses are. Um, and naturally, it's a demanding sport. So the fitter you can be at anything you do, I just find the better you're going to make decisions, uh, minimize errors, um, wake up fresher, more energy. So I've trained harder through COVID in the last few months than I probably otherwise would have if I was racing every second week on the road traveling. Um, of course, I've done that. That, that goes without saying. I've kept myself fit, um, but yeah, you're not you're not driving. There's those very specific muscles driving that, unless you're actually driving, um, there's no other way to to strengthen your neck, your back, um, just dealing with g forces and uh, very yeah. So I've obviously done whatever I can out of the car. Um, I, I race a go kart now. I've got a six speed one two five cc shifter kart. I've actually been doing all the local club days out at uh, out at Ipswich or. Uh, with all the young teenagers, just to keep <laughs> you handy, grassroots, yeah, and and the, the shifter carts are more physical than anything, any race car you could ever drive. That's why a lot of the young Formula One drivers all off season are in their shifter carts, super sticky tires, massively violent to drive. So I've been driving that a lot. Um, back out again in that tomorrow. 
Um, just doing whatever I can, crossing all my T's, dotting my I's, making sure I don't get the bathurst and have any any fatigue that comes across me. Just trying to stay sharp, and I'm confident it'll come back to me. It's like riding a bike. It's only been six months. Um, normally in the off season, we might have three months out of a car, and by my second or third lap at the first test day, you you're straight back on it like you've never left. So yeah, this is a little bit longer, but you know I'm, I'm sure we'll hit the ground running um, straight out the gate in Bathurst just next week. So. I'm very, very keen to stop thinking about it and uh, get out of my simulator. I've been in my simulator quite a lot and uh, just yeah, get back into the real thing. You talk about neck muscles. Uh, I was lucky enough to sit behind you and go around Albert Park in that F1 two-seater, the Minardi. Uh, it's extraordinary the G-forces on your head, and I presume when you were doing that you weren't going flat out. We were just having a cruise, right? That's right. That's right, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> um, Exactly. I think from memory, you might have been in on the Wednesday or Thursday as well. So, uh, yeah, it's certainly you, – you've got a small taste um, of what it feels like and, and, and the forces. And, yeah, you're right. That was only a probably a reasonably cruisy lap uh, on that day, you know, when you first run the car around Albert Park on the Thursday. The track's covered in dust, very slippery, so that the grip level is massively lower than what it otherwise would be. Even in that two-seater Thursday to Sunday is hugely different. Uh, and that's, you know, a good step behind the current Formula One cars that are pulling six, six and a half Gs is absolutely mind boggling. Um, certainly in a supercar, we, we don't get anywhere near those forces, but still, you know, very violent in there. We're going over curbs very aggressively. Um, getting, yeah, just getting huge energies through your body. Um, and it's still, yeah, still certainly, uh, yeah, certainly challenges certain elements of your body um, that you really can't simulate in the gym. We do our best, but it's very difficult to. Yeah, I certainly found that out. Will, good luck. I'm really looking forward to seeing you back in uh, a full-time drive in the V8 Supercar competition next year and and look forward to seeing how you run with Cam Waters at Bathurst. It's been a great pleasure catching up with you, mate. Thanks a lot. Yeah, great to chat, Steve. And, yeah, fingers crossed we'll uh, try and get another Bathurst trophy and you're working really hard to be back full-time next year. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we can get something locked away soon.